The material contained in this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice. You should not act or fail to act on anything based on any of the material contained herein without first consulting with a lawyer. My guests and I strive to ensure accuracy in this podcast, but we do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any of its contents. Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson and Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. Work's dangerous. Real work is dangerous. Not what you and I do. You and I experience paper cuts. and Those can be pretty traumatic sometimes. They're not great. Always recovering. We never heal. We're going to speak about health and safety regulation on the farm today. But before we get there, let me introduce Frank Portman to you. Well, Frank is what we solicitors call a real lawyer, and that's in quotation marks. He works at Stringer LLP, a workplace-focused law firm in Ontario, and he appears in gowns in front of judges and tribunals and has an up-to-date knowledge of the rules of civil procedure. I guess that, in turn, makes me and my colleagues fake lawyers. We generally just help people come to handshakes and agreements or help clients navigate the unknowable in regulatory space. But, uh, well, so be it. Frank practices in a fairly dark space. He often works on behalf of employers who have had a workplace accident and are facing regulatory charges, fines and sentences imposed by the Crown onto businesses for failing to adequately protect employees from workplace dangers. It can be a grisly job. Now, here's an excerpt of our conversation that isn't related to food at all. It's just plain old regulatory prosecutions, so you can get a taste. But yeah, so death stalks you at every turn, eh? Yeah, pretty much. That are critical injuries. Yeah, those are worse from an employer's perspective. Well, they are and they aren't. I mean, from a strictly speaking, from a prosecutorial perspective, um, the, the fines are bigger for deaths. Um, but the added, of course, and I, I hesitate to say because, of course, you never want to see anyone die. Um, but there's the added um, administrative administration of dealing with a worker's comp claim after critical injury as well. Whereas in a workplace death, you're looking at survivor benefits and that's it. Yeah. It's so clean. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of dark to talk about these things in such a you know, clinical way, but from a strict legal perspective, right? Survivor benefits are survivor benefits. You don't have to worry about, you know, accommodated work or modified duties or, any of those sort of return to work aspects that play into a workers' comp claim, which is, you know, usually an ongoing thing for years. So what's the goriest case that you've read? 
Andrew's trilogy. That, that that's that's a that's a good one. Although those are sort of, I mean, in in either we're in just a workplace safety context or in general. Uh, let's go in general. Let's so go. in general, there was a case involving. Um, it was actually one of the highest um, damage awards in Canadian history, and it was a. Um, it was a fall where uh, a very, very young child, like infant, basically climbed out of an 11th story window and survived the fall, but with the resulting catastrophic injuries. Um, I find the fall ones the most disturbing. Um, the, the Metron, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Metron situation. No. So it's been sort of the big news in, in health and safety over the last couple of years. In 2009, uh, there was uh, it was a, a group of um, individuals doing concrete restoration on the side of a building down on Kipling, actually, in Etobicoke. And there were six of them on a swing stage. Swing stage collapsed. One and a half of them were tied off. And f- five of them fell 11 stories to the ground. Four of them died. One of them somehow survived in really the most technical way possible. Um, and what's been interesting about that from a legal perspective is that um, that case represents the first two Ontario uh, convictions of people under the criminal code provisions that were passed after Westray. What's Westray? So Westray was a, okay, Westray was a um, it was an accident in uh, Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, in 1992. It was an explosion Spring underground. The Spring Hill disaster. The There's actually been several Spring Hill disasters. The second Spring Hill disaster. And Murray's the first, right? <laughs> There's actually been, I believe, three or four different mining disasters in Spring Hill that have resulted in multiple casualties at various mines. Um, it does not have a very good reputation for health and safety. But um, what happened was basically the, um, uh, the the investigation revealed that there was a lot of um, uh, incredibly lax to the point of um, willful blindness of... Uh, certain members of management of the mine towards health and safety concerns of the mine, which as you can imagine is one of the most safety sensitive workplaces there is. And, uh, and, but due to um, both some problems in terms of how the case was investigated, as well as how it was prosecuted and the laws that were in place at the time, ultimately no one was held criminally liable for this accident, which killed 26 people. Like it's a very significant case. So what happened after that was in 2002, Parliament passed a bill that sort of clarified um, within the criminal code that uh, supervisors, managers on site have a positive obligation towards workplace health and safety in a criminal context, meaning that a sufficient breach uh, of health and safety obligations um, that these people could be held criminally liable for criminal negligence causing death or criminal negligence causing bodily harm. And it's very tough to get one of those convictions. Basically, what, what we've learned, what you have to show is not just that there was a breach of health and safety obligations, but in fact that you were aware of it and just ignored it and that it was an extreme risk. Um, so, But even though this was passed in 2002, um, with the exception of one case in Quebec that was very, um, the subject of very little reporting wasn't, hasn't really been considered as precedent too often. Um, there have only been two convictions 
of individuals under this provision, both of which happened in respect of this Metron accident in 2009. So the company itself, as well as the site super. And the site super um, is the first example of an individual rather than a corporation to be convicted under these provisions. And last week, we actually got the sentencing decision. Um, so the guy was convicted of four counts of criminal negligence causing death, one causing bodily harm, and was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. So it's a significant, given that the Health and Safety Act itself only allows for a 12-month jail time in the case of an individual, and most of the time you see um, you see sentencing cases that are along the lines of like 30 days, and 30-day sentences are sort of served on weekends. So you do four days, you, you spend the weekend in jail, you come back. Um, so this is obviously three and a half years in, in jail is a significant amount of time, particularly given that this guy wasn't in custody, so he didn't get any uh any credit for time that he spent in uh, in prison beforehand, um, which you often get in criminal cases. So, you know, this is obviously a very substantial um, conviction from that perspective. And and Metron, the actual conviction of the, um, the company itself, went up to the Court of Appeal because no one really had any idea how do you sentence a corporation for criminal negligence causing death. You can't throw people in jail. You can't throw the owner of... Uh, a company in jail just on the basis that they own the company. Um, and basically what the court said is you can craft whatever fine you think is appropriate. Um, and they ended up with a fine that was um, $800,000, which is far more than the original judge who relied on the Health and Safety Act uh, imposed a $250,000 fine, which is about what you'd expect under just the provincial legislation. But the the court said, look, if you, if you make it to criminal negligence, then you have a heightened level of moral blameworthiness. This is not, you know, you had a, a machine operating and you didn't have the proper guard on it. This is, you were aware of something and you, you kept performing your work anyway. Right. Right. And you did it and essentially your behavior meant that you were either reckless or you put the safety or you put profits ahead of the safety of your workers and you need to we need to condemn this roundly the eight hundred thousand dollar fine was something on the order of years of the gross profit of the company like the, the court of appeal imposed this full well knowing that this was the end of the company as they knew it right and they said that's the price you pay when you commit a criminal act so we, we've been following that that saga because there's other parties as well. At this point, there's been over one and a half million dollars in fines and surcharges levied on various parties involved in this particular accident. Um, but it's interesting because not just from that perspective, but also under um, the provincial legislation, which is the thing that most people will be far more familiar with, because really only the worst kinds of accidents are going to fall under uh, under criminal um, negligence statutes. But even under provincial legislation, you know, the, the things that, that say tie off when you're working at heights or that you need guardrails or that, you know, any sort of sharp object has to, you know, be covered um, in a workplace. We're seeing more and more courts sending people to jail. So, yeah, you get the picture. It, it can get dark. With that in mind, the real substance that we want to cover today starts now. Alberta's Bill 6, now the Enhanced Protection for Farm and Ranch Workers Act, came into force earlier this year, and I wanted to speak with Frank, a lawyer specialized in health and safety regulation and the relationships between employers and employees, 
to speak to me about how the farm is changing in this context. When we recorded this podcast a couple months ago, the act had recently been made into law and no regulations had yet been proclaimed. Now, as of now, consultations have begun. So if you're a stakeholder here, now is a great time to contact your MLA and get involved because depending on where the government lands in this consultation, on various components of the bill, there will be consequences to worker safety, to commercial workplace norms, and to Alberta's cultural legacy of the small family farm. Now, before we begin, I do want to make it clear that we make a ton of assumptions about agricultural life, rural life, and farming, and this is coming from two Torontonian lawyers, which is never a good sign. Out of fairness, it does bear noting that I did grow up, at least partially, beside a variety of corn, poultry, and dairy operations north of this fair city, and Frank is from Calgary, Alberta, and he managed the largest ranchman's bar in the province, so he's seen more than his fair share of cowboy boots, hats, and diesel dooleys. Although knowing Calgary, those were probably all investment bankers that he encountered, and he's never actually met a farmer. But we both come at this understanding that we have a limited grasp of what it means to work on a farm and what happens on most farming operations, and that most of those operations are unique to themselves. So bear with us if we start to make some assumptions that may not align with your particular experience. Now that last part, the small family farm, is what I think makes this discussion interesting. Often there's a push and pull between employer stakeholders and employee stakeholders when uh, dealing with consultation and figuring out what's safe and when compliance costs become too great. When we start getting into discussions that tackle long-standing institutions like the family farm that have received both an acknowledgement of their role in Canadian heritage, but have had an equally long history of a high rate of workplace accidents, things get infinitely more complex. If you picture on an x-axis having a dangerous and regulation-free work environment on one end of the spectrum and a safe but inefficient from uh, regulatory compliance costs uh, environment on the other you've got the traditional tension in drafting health and safety regulation and legislation but this conversation also has a y-axis which reflects culture let's call it the narrative of the diy rancher on the frontier at one end of that y-axis, and modern commercial industrial operations and their norms on the other. Now, at what point is a farmer's autonomous understanding and expertise over his or her operation superseded by the public need to ensure safe workplaces? Or alternatively, how long does the government need to wait for farms to reduce the number of catastrophic accidents that happen each year in Canada before it steps in? And should this include the regulation of family, volunteers, and communities? This is all going to be sorted out in regulations that are being consulted on right now. But ultimately, the point is, this discussion isn't the traditional binary tug of war that we see in a lot of regulatory consultation. It's more nuanced than that, and Albertans need to respond accordingly. Here's my conversation with Frank Portman from Stringer LLP. Before we started recording, we were talking about where most workplace accidents happen. And, and really, they're focused on a few very specific sectors. Mining, fishing, fisheries, super dangerous. Construction generally, very dangerous. And agriculture, 
very dangerous. Any others I should be including there? Those are the big ones. Um, we also see a fair amount of uh, of injuries in, um, and I, I hesitate to call it a sector, but in transportation type activities. Right. The most dangerous thing that any of us do on a frequent basis, right? Exactly. Is driving a car. But if you go back to that sort of truncated list, half of those involve food production. So we're talking about farming communities, uh, the production of food. And then the second half of it, we're talking about uh, fisheries, which is its own thing. And I don't think we're going to touch on that today because not a whole lot of fishing going on in the province of Ontario where you practice. But from an agricultural perspective, it's dangerous stuff. There are sharp things and heavy things and live animals and you're out in the country. And traditionally, this is a sector that hasn't been overly interfered with from a health and safety perspective. I think that's fair to say. Is that correct? I think that is. I mean, there's there's always been an appreciation, particularly when you're dealing with um, the small sort of stereotypical family farm, that these are businesses that are sort of subject to their own rules. That, you know, when you're working on a family farm, you're the master of your own destiny. And so um, you're, you're sort of expected to to know the risks that come with that. But not just that, also it's the sort of um, assumption of risk that you take by participating in that activity. A a lot of health and safety legislation sort of is designed around the the idea of avoiding almost a Dickensian workplace where, um, you know, injuries, deaths to employees is just a cost of doing business rather than something that should be an organizational mandate and you know i think obviously we've moved a far far uh distance from the victorian times when you would see you know 10 year olds working on factory lines but that's a lot of the concern that underpins the health and safety legislation so you don't have those same concerns necessarily well they're not dickensian it would be like louisa may alcott and W.O. Mitchell and Farley Mowat based statutes that would apply to farms, right? Exactly. And like a rich pastiche of like heartland. Exactly. And there's, you know, there's something, there's something romantic about the the frontier idea of a farm. You know, people are, are forging their own way without the help or interference of anyone else. And I think that that probably also plays into um, this sort of historical um hands-off approach that uh, that has been taken towards small farming operations in the, the health and safety context. It kind of makes sense. I mean, the contemporaneity of health and safety regulation alongside going west and, and starting substantial farming operations, it's really, it's beside itself. You've got The Jungle. It was written in 1902, 1897, right around the turn of the century, which sort of piqued America's interest in how their meat is produced or processed with some horrific examples in the book. And that started essentially uh, meat regulation as we know it today. Government inspectors go into slaughterhouses, they go into to major processing facilities, and they start asking questions and looking around. At the exact same time, uh, Canada takes on an incredible experiment in immigration and brings on settlers and essentially says, here's a, here's a section of land out west, go to your best, we'll see you. And it's interesting you should mention The Jungle because um, Upton Sinclair, in, in later interviews after he wrote that book, actually bemoaned the fact that that book was taken and used as 
um, you know, the, sort of the basis for the FDA. He yeah. was really focused on... This so, is a communist manifesto. This is a way to rise together as a socialist well, cause in America. And, and when you read that book, the, the treatment of the workers there, which is, again, you know, we're, we're talking 100, 120 years removed, is it's pretty glaring, right? But I, I think it's a sort of interesting... It's an interesting point, though, because, again, even when you're looking at this, what are people... What are people concerned about in that? It's the other health and safety risk, not the occupational one, but the threat to the food supply. Well, look, I don't know. I don't work in a slaughterhouse. Like they choose to do that. I like a porterhouse. I want that to be treated well and respectfully, and I don't want to get sick. Well, and I think that that's that's always been a bit of um, the difficulty when it comes to um, dealing with health and safety legislation. Is how do we? There's most sort of, if you want to call them initial production activities, whether it be, you know, agricultural in the sense of raising cattle or, uh, you know, growing crops, or even you move up the food chain, the processing of materials. Um, these are activities that are always going to be subject to risk because in the modern context where you need to use, um, you know, you need to use these huge, dangerous machines in order to be able to produce economically viable levels of product, there's always going to be an inherent risk. And as much as we might like to, we can't totally eliminate the risk in these workplaces. And so what modern health and safety legislation has been concerned with is making sure that we maximally protect workers without creating regimes that are going to make the uh, who that are going to make the ends unjustifiable right that that put an un that put a a standard of perfection on an employer that really is not realistic and which and there's been multiple judicial con uh, comment on this is not something that we're even trying to do right we have to you have to maintain people's ability to be able to go into the market and create the products that we consume, but at the same time, reconcile that with the fact that efficiency cannot be the be-all end-all of that conversation. It's always fascinating because there's a food justice or access to food component of it, right? Which is if you spend so much on food regulation that that food becomes inaccessible for people to buy, then you've defeated the function of the process. Like that you need to maintain a certain price level that makes the food accessible for your citizens to nourish themselves. Otherwise, you've defeated your own purpose. But that, I mean, so this concept of, of trying to figure out that sweet spot between health and safety and protecting workers in a workplace while they produce food. You know, the hard thing the courts are tasked with is trying to figure out as a whole, where should that be? Do you find this is like shifting over time? Well, I think that, that it is and it isn't. I think that um, in terms of uh, in terms of the specific uh, regulations, in terms of uh, the Health and Safety Act has is it's a huge voluminous text. Once you include all these regulations, and a lot of those regulations will spell out in extreme detail what you do or don't have to do. So, for example, on a construction site, how close you can work to electrical wires overhead. That's there's a set distance and that past that line thou shalt not cross. But the other aspect is that there's sort of this more general duty and it's the general duty to take all reasonable precautions to protect a worker. And so that is very context dependent, 
right? And it really depends on the workplace, but it also depends on the type of worker that you're dealing with. And as as workers, particularly as they get more experienced in industries, that's where the scale starts to shift a little bit. When I look at the food sector generally, a lot of it is really tightly regulated from a health and safety perspective. So there are inspections of restaurants and there are horrific accidents every year in restaurants. There's a lot of hot equipment. There are people working very long hours. There are knives and sharp things everywhere. Uh, there are a lot of people moving around. It's prone to that so that restaurants are sort of scrutinized or makes sense to me. And the same truly goes for, for processing facilities. But farms, oddly, seem to exist outside of this universe. And it, it's a, a workplace that sort of defies the traditional understanding of workplaces, or at least in like a colloquial or conventional sense. And from, a, from an Employment Standards Act sense, sometimes it's included and sometimes it's not. And they've got their own insurance regime farmers do and uh, and that makes it challenging to fit it within this context so what i want to talk to you about today was really uh, revolves around bill six uh, which has become the enhanced protection for farm and ranch workers act in alberta and has really changed what workplace standards look like for people who work or in a sense volunteer on or own or run the small family farm to get back to the top of the question, do you think there's truth to this notion that the hospitality or the distribution or production workplace is treated differently from the farming workplace from a health and safety perspective? I mean, I guess there's sort of two ways uh, to answer that question. From a legal perspective, there actually isn't much of a difference. Um, the, the, there, There's differences between any workplace in terms of what sort of specific precautions you need to take. And that, that'll vary depending on uh, the sort of economic activity that's being done, as well as other factors. So from, from a strict legal perspective, not so much. But I do think from a perception perspective, there may be. And I think that part of it sort of comes down to this idea um, that what we want to avoid is a situation where uh, companies are... Uh, given these perverse incentives where, um, you know, productivity can be pushed at the expense of, uh, of workers, right? We want to avoid having the bosses who are putting their employees in harm's way in order to make that extra bit of profit. And, and that's what a lot of people, I think, perceive of uh, as being the point of the health and safety regime. And I don't think that given socially are our view of farms right again we've got this sort of you know the prairie midwestern you know hard-working family up at five to bed at 11 um, you know plowing the fields during the harvest season we've, we've all got that sort of canadiana image in our heads and so i think that um, we perceive there as being uh, less of a risk of seeing that perverse incentive play itself out in the farming context. Academics uh, who write on agrarian activities always look to the farmer as the great steward of the environment because they can't pick up and leave and the great steward of the community because they're invested. So that rural sort of atmosphere was seen to, to keep people really honest. So with Bill 6, maybe you can go over how this changes life for uh, an Albertan small farmer. 
so Bill 6 is one of those, uh, I hesitate to say omnibus, but it's it's sort of a wide-ranging piece of legislation. There's, there's aspects of it that touch upon um, organized labor, which has always been a bit of a thorny issue when it comes to the farming sector, not just in Alberta, but there have been you know cases to the Supreme Court about this regime in Ontario. So it, it makes some changes on that perspective. It also makes some changes insofar as um, eligibility for workers' compensation is concerned. Uh, Alberta was formerly uh, an opt-out province where uh, farmers could choose not to participate in the workers' compensation system. And so, um, and obviously, uh, and that's been changed so that now um, more farms are going to be subject to workers' comp uh, regulations, which does mean a significant added increased cost to, to these farms. Um, from a health and safety perspective, what's interesting is that it's sort of changed the, it, it's gone from an, uh, very much from nothing to all in terms of health and safety coverage. And the reason for that is that, so health and before Bill 6 in Alberta, certain agricultural uh, entities, both farms as well as things that might be considered you know, sort of a larger scale than the traditional family farm, were covered were not covered by the Health and Safety Act, and that's because eligibility was determined on the basis of the sector in which they were operating. And this has changed to where now the exception is much more limited to closely held farms without other employees. So that's sort of now the threshold. Rather than what you are doing as your fundamental economic activity. Now they're going to be looking at, well, do you have employees? And once you once you hire that farmhand, then that triggers your obligations under the Health and Safety Act. Are you saying employees in just anyone sort of doing work on the farm, like like any worker, or does it include like independent contractors who show up and might do a very specific task on your farm in a repeated way, or a kid, or is it literally like we have payroll? And we run payroll every two weeks, and you get paid by the hour, and we do source deductions. Well, so one of the one of the frustrating parts, I think, for for any employer who, um, any employer's HR department really, is that uh, under different for different purposes, people can or cannot be employees in different contexts. Right? You can be something different for tax, as opposed to workers' compensation, as opposed to health and safety, as opposed to your entitlements on, say, a wrongful dismissal. Um, traditionally, health and safety uh, case law suggests that uh, worker is defined very broadly, and it does include individuals who you may have contracted through sort of an independent contractor type of relationship. Um, and, and there's there's a wealth of case law uh, dealing with contractor, subcontractor relationships, most of it coming from the construction sector. But there have been cases, one notable one in Ontario about seven years ago, um, where, where companies have been held out to be employers, even though they didn't even have any employees on the site, that they purely perform their work through subcontracting relationships. So as soon as you are engaging someone to do work for you in some sort of economically meaningful way, then chances are you have engaged some sort of workplace health and safety obligation. Now, the extent of that obligation, um, what the specific content of that is can change you know, significantly depending upon 
what the relationship is. But it's a safe bet to assume that when you hire someone to perform work for you, then you're going to be under some obligation towards ensuring that the workplace in which that person works is safe. So how is this different from the way things were in Alberta? I mean, in Ontario, we haven't had changes in this front for quite a time, right? I mean, we've just sort of accepted basically what you set out, which is as soon as you hire someone, like things change and you have to start reporting and complying. Uh, but until that point, when you're the small family farmer and that's just you out there, then there's a degree of personal responsibility and an expectation you know what you're doing. In Alberta, what was the system beforehand? I mean, what you're describing sounds very similar to what we have in Ontario. Well, the big difference is really the how you define what that basic family farm looks like. And I think that really, in a lot of ways, Bill 6 uh, reflects um, the growing trend towards uh, more commercial establishments in the agricultural sector. Um, so before when the determination of who was or wasn't subject to these obligations was sector-based, you would capture, you know, large-scale farms with, you know, lots of employees, just as well as you would capture a, a, a farm run by mom and pop down in Vulcan, Alberta. So what this, this law represents, and this is similar to what we see in Ontario, is really saying, look, we're still going to keep these family farms exempt because we do value the personal autonomy. We, we value the historical context of these family farms. But we're not going to extend that beyond what we think actually should be protected. And, and so I think that in some ways this is catching up with um, the commercial reality of a lot of intensive agriculture in the 21st century. And so like, this legislation in part arose from some fairly horrific accidents that happened in 2015. And it was, uh, I mean, there were two incidents. One involved a grain silo and three young, well, three kids, like 10-year-olds. Uh, or thirteen-year-olds. They were they were early adolescents, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, suffocated to death. Yeah, they uh, they essentially drowned um, in uh, I believe it was some sort of seed, or it was a massive, um, you know, just a massive holding area for this, and they they fell into it and unfortunately couldn't couldn't get couldn't get out, and they all uh, they all unfortunately died. Um, there was another incident involving a uh, a young. Uh, uh, young worker, I guess he would have been around 10, uh, from what I understand, um, working in some sort of a, a religious farming community. And uh, he was uh, killed when the tractor he was driving uh, had a rollover accident. Does this legislation now cover those incidents? I mean, those are kids, right? Like, so... Well, and, and this, this sort of comes into a very, uh, very strange gray area, because uh, the, the, the legal characteristic of, um, you know, a child working on a family farm is really something that's quite unique, right? We have, there's all sorts of prohibitions against, um, you know, people under certain ages working, period. Um, but of course, you know, the, the again, we, we get back to sort of the mythology of the family farm. This is, a, this is a huge part of that, having the kids chip in and milk the cows or, you know, help process, uh, um, you know, help sort crops at the end of the day, that sort of thing. Um, but of course, traditionally, these 
these aren't individuals. They're not getting paid for their work. They're not subject to the same employment standards because, of course, they're children working with their parents on a farm. So there really is, a, I think, a question um, which is interesting given that these, these workplaces were um, purportedly the impetus for this bill. There's a real gray area in terms of whether or not health and safety obligations include the requirement that you um, that you make reasonable accommodation for having a you know a person who is of such tender years working in these establishments, and so it's it's interesting because there really isn't a whole lot of guidance in that point in the courts either because it is such a unique situation from a labor perspective. Reading through the act, it's funny because it brings in a lot of really traditional language surrounding employees and what employees rights look like. like one of them is uh, the ability to refuse work that's that they feel is unsafe yeah. and i think that if it does apply to to kids i mean you've essentially turned the family structure upside down if you're telling me to go do my chores and milk my milk my allotted cows and i'm saying those cows kick Ugh. i don't know i mean you've essentially uprooted the entire social value structure of having a whole brood of kids and 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 getting them to uh, to help you out on the farm, like it's it's something that's got to be settled. It's amazing that it's not given the anecdotal rationale for pushing this through. And that's really, I, I think, the the tension that lies at the core of a lot of the debate, particularly in Alberta, about this bill. I mean, it was interesting. You could see there was sort of a uh, a war of op-eds in the various papers talking about uh, you know farmers coming out on both sides of the issue, and I think that. What, what, what comes out of it is that there are um, very valid values being expressed on both sides. And I don't think that those who are opposed to the bill are necessarily opposed to having, you know, protections for workers. And likewise, on the other side, I, I don't believe that that those individuals who are who are uh, strong proponents of this bill are necessarily trying to, you know, stamp out the, the family farmer to use any of the, the more colorful, you know, political positions that we've seen. Um, but it really highlights this tension, right? You've got on the one hand, you have an industry which, um, which has a lot of inherent risks in it just because of the type of economic activity it's doing, where a lot of workers tend to be the sort of, um, the sort of people sort of more transient seasonal workers um, often uh, recent immigrants who may not have uh, the same comfort level and familiarity with um, with the ability to refuse work with health and safety protections on the one hand. And so it is a valid goal to want to try and extend protection to this vulnerable people, but at the same time, respect the fact that this is a more or less unique economic organization that we're dealing with here how do you reconcile those two and i think it's as this bill has shown i think it's very difficult if not impossible to actually regulate that without stepping on toes on both sides of that debate yeah completely completely but it's a i mean it all comes back from this this cultural legacy of essentially going west and having nothing but your community to support you i mean you think of uh, and for me, like I'm a, a kid from Ontario, so so a lot of this is mythological and required high school reading. But you talk about barn raisings and uh, and actually working a farm just out of a community obligation. If someone gets hurt, you need to understand where that 
that liability lives. I mean, from an insurance standpoint, from a, a standard standpoint, from how you keep your farm, like it's like they're just questions. And I think it's also valuable, you know, particularly when you're talking about um, smaller operations, you know, where you may just have one lead hand or, um, you know, just a, a couple of seasonal employees. I think there's actually some value as well to to having a, a set of regulations that you can look at and know how to vindicate these obligations. If, if you're a if you're a farmer operating even a mid-sized farm and you have a you know a, a few seasonal employees, you may not have you know the most intense HR type training. So you know it's unfair to that person who's in their position because of their skill at this one economic activity to, to ask them to you know figure out, all of these intricate health and safety provisions that are that can be very complex. It's, it, risk risk assessment is a very difficult field, and I think that there's some value in having you know regulations that say, hey, this is in this situation, this is what must be done to protect workers, because by by creating clear rules that are easy to understand and easy to implement, then you're helping everyone involved in this conversation really to make sure that um, not just from compliance on the one side, but also to make sure that, you know, someone who perhaps isn't, you know, the most mechanically inclined understands how is, how is this machine that maybe I've operated since my youth in a certain way, how can we operate this in the way that's the most safe for both me and my workers. I think there's some value in having that guidance there. Right. So then it's just breaking into the culture. Maybe having a, a family viewing night where you pull out uh, workplace hazardous materials, informational system training, and throw it on the big screen and, and sit down and soak it up so that you're ready to go and work on a farm. I mean, the, that's sort of where we're heading. Like what's weird is, is we're leaving a place where culturally there is lots of knowledge and lots of understanding and awareness of being able to evaluate risk, but it's not in a formal way. And what we're heading towards is something where there is, if not certification, then at least a desire to see some formal way or objective way of understanding what steps have been taken to protect employees or workers in a farm or agricultural scenario. In terms of ensuring that there is a baseline level of safety knowledge within the area, what's the best way to go about doing that? Um, and I think that by and large, and this this is true well outside of the health and safety context, legislatures think, well, the best way to deal with this is let's make a comprehensive set of rules and apply it. And, you know, I'm not sure, um, you know, it's difficult to really come up with a way that that creates that baseline of of protection and knowledge right and ensures it across the board and i think that's really what what these bills are struggling with and also you know that comes back to that fundamental tension between the two sides how do you how do you ensure that workers are protected to the minimum level that we expect um, even if in an industry which takes this seriously how do you ensure that 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 everyone is subject to that same level of base knowledge while at the same time ensuring that there isn't overreach and that 
you know, a very individualistic activity is not regulated to the point of being almost mechanistic and destroying that that individualism that we we hold dear in these operations. Yes, one of the complaints that we hear from the agricultural sector a little bit when speaking with farmers is is the inherent complexity of this area of legislation as well. It's just so difficult to figure out. Uh, when someone is a harvester versus a farm worker or whether someone is an employee or not, and then how to pay them even uh, in terms of compensation when they're away or in terms of overtime or, or what rules apply. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that to move from essentially zero where you've got very little, very little regulation or it feels like comparatively very little regulation to a system that is that is deeply complex, perhaps necessarily so. How do you help manage that transition? Well, I think it's I think it's very difficult. Uh, you know, we've had um, we've had cases involving sort of industries where employees don't fit into your typical organizational chart, right? Where a, a small farming operation is a all hands on deck type of situation. Um, you know, it's, you're going to go work where you're needed. You're not going to be strictly speaking in, it's not a factory assembly line where, you know, you have one job and you're going to do it and that's what you're going to do for eight hours a day. Um, you know, because you're even just seasonally, your, um, you know, your obligations can shift. What needs to be done needs to be done right then. There isn't, um, there isn't any room for, um, you know, for, for slowing down or for not doing things because you've got such a small window to complete a harvest. Um, and so, and, and the real difficulty from that perspective is that it means that as an employer, because you can foresee that everybody's going to be doing the broad range of everything, um, that it's going to be difficult, uh, to, to peg someone with a certain type of, of training or precaution, you're going to have to teach everyone everything, and so that's that's a pretty big burden when you consider, you know, particularly if you're dealing with a family farm that's not uh, that has you know a couple of different types of crops or animals or anything like that, which can involve different types of of activities. You've got to be able to plan so that each of your workers is prepared to the best extent possible to deal with the minutiae and the differences of those procedures. So it is, it, it is quite, a, uh, quite a regulatory burden on particularly these smaller enterprises who, who are doing things the same way that they've been doing them for, in some cases, hundreds of years. And now you have to really institutionalize that knowledge in a much more formalistic way than, you ha- than you've had to before. Do you think this will increase the gulf between more industrial or, or high production farming operations and the farmer who doesn't want any of this to apply and essentially is it's a one-man show? I mean, it seems to me that like if you are working for a, a major producer, they've got the same cash that any other industry would have to devote to training and workplace policies and having the resources from a legal perspective and a human resources perspective to implement health and safety by the book or the way that it should. 
and the one man show obviously can can try to exist in in this world where they need not apply and he can operate on his best judgment but all of a sudden it's the place that that has three seasonal workers that show up during a harvest um that isn't going to be prepared or isn't going to have policies together or the cash to bring in a lawyer like yourself and say like, well, this is a problem. This is a problem. This should have a guardrail on it. This is not high enough. You need a heater in here. I think that the part of this, I think what will be the same between both, um, both of those uh, organizations that you just described is uh, the training element, right? I think that that's, that's really the one thing that sort of percolates throughout employers of all sizes is that your workers have to be have to have the knowledge to be able to go out there to be able to identify when something is unsafe or could be unsafe um, to know how to react to a situation that's unsafe whether that be through stop work whether that be through just hitting the hitting the red button um, and there are and I think that, where the differences come and where um, where I think that additional obligations would be put on that commercial size producer is that from the very nature of that operation, there are going to be more formalized risks. You're going to be dealing with heavier equipment. You're going to deal, be dealing oftentimes with a uh, more hectic workplace where um, you know there's a lot of people moving around, equipment moving around, um, and also when you get to that that scale of commercial activity there's much more specialized individual tasks so those particular tasks are going to require a lot more individualized training and so that's a burden that 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 producer takes on by expanding their capacity to reach that level it's a necessary part once you you know start getting into these industrial activities that that have a little more risk um, it's a necessary part to be able to follow that up with the safety precautions and ensuring that you know your equipment's up to uh, um, up to more regimented standards and things like that. Um, what I think will be will be difficult is in terms of um, determining, you know, with respect to a family farm and you've got a, a person who does not have formalized training in uh, you know health and safety legislation, what is do do we expect the same burden on that person when it comes to training for the things that they need to train for as we would from a sophisticated organization with you know a human resources department who has taken courses specifically in how to create and maintain effective health and safety policies and and i think in large part because we haven't seen um you know, we haven't seen too many uh, small-scale agricultural producers prosecuted under the Act for, you know, the reasons we talked about earlier. Um, we don't have a lot of guidance in terms of, in terms of that. Thanks to Frank Portman from Stringer LLP for joining me in studio in Toronto. Next episode has, for the first time ever, two very special guests as I managed to completely lose control of the discussion as we discuss food and not-for-profits. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud to let us know you're listening. Or reach out to us on Twitter. Until then, thanks to Shane McPherson for the great music, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>